The fire in my words. Fire. We talk, talk. History unfolded. Here on this stage. I love what's cooking. The mic is hot. I'm ready to I'm go. ready to go. Come on. Hey, slam, mill, cypher, in effect. We ready for warfare. We ready to give back. Give it back. Crossroads, cypher's on deck. Recycling guard science. Salute my mic check and walk with it. All hell, fuck a lesson, get down. Get him up. Fuck him up. Mill, cypher. You will agree that everywhere that we go, that we crush these brothers. It's the return of the guard. Let the dollars be born. Close your mouth from shock and get your peoples on a horn. Tell them that I reforged the movement sword and I'm ready to get it on. Destined Aragorn, battle tested. I'm in the struggle worldwide, bringing coaches out the nooks and crannies. It's our time for rhyme elevation. We stiffen the competition. He's back. Oh, let's let's go to what it really is then. When we talk about the power of melanated people, when we talk mm-hmm. about who we really are as guys and, and understanding right. that our melanin is so power and it connects us in a way that the reason why they fear black, the reason why they fear is because they the lack that they have of it. So then when you see what you know, Dr. Uh, Francis C. Wellesley talked about is that fear in that 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 uh, just genetic annihilation efficiency of mm-hmm. when you have a person that has ha- has the lack of pigment the right. lack of melanin right. that they know that they will be annihilated so therefore however they got the power they 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 have the lack of compassion mm-hmm. that mel- melanin comes with compassion melanin comes with soul that mm-hmm. we call it we call it soul we soul brothers and sisters that's the melanin that connects us right. so the people that don't have it have are are a little, and I'm, I'm gonna say this carefully, <laughs> are a little less, and 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 where the term actually comes from, because I'm bringing it all the way back around okay. to, to Minister Farrakhan, to where they may not have the compassion or the the when they were sent to the mountains of Caucasus when they when they didn't have the power of the sun that was that the sun then started to deteriorate mm-hmm. them, so then they're acting out of fear they're acting out of low self-esteem they're acting out of a a deficiency Mm -hmm. so therefore the only way that they can act is evil the only way they can they they have to rob steal rape kill and fight or flight in in order to survive exactly so then these people who didn't have what we had and when i say we i speak of the Mm -hmm. melanated people right they had to be savages. They had to be barbaric. They had because they're in these Nordic mountains. They're in these rough, uh, torrential environments. Mm. So they they're acting as animals. Right. So they're the ones that are actually closer to animals. They're the ones that are actually the true savages. And then they built up such this this. I don't want to say warrior, but they built up such this 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 conquering mm-hmm. uh, barbaric mentality that they're coming out of Europe. They then said, in order for us to survive, we have to take what's not ours. And then they went into the land that actually where we were are originated. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to make friends, they said, we want what you got because there's this mentality of the, whether it's the Caesars or, or even that, that, we have to conquer. Right, right, right. So I say all that to say the context. And when when we speak of whether it's Jewish people, white people, Europeans, the Illuminati, mm. they were doing that as survival tactics right. to stay on this planet. Right, because they, we never had to do that. Right. All right. Ron Holland here and a good day to you. 
we're going to jump right into this thing. Episode 11, Nick Cannon's hard lesson, very hard lesson in power deficit. And we are entitling this episode with a specific purpose uh, because we are going to have to address some issues uh, that requires some sensitivity. And I want to be absolutely clear. I'm going to tread lightly uh, because it requires careful consideration and exhaustive study. And most importantly, an ability to articulate without hurling uh, people as bigots and anti-Semites. Uh, we have to be careful uh, with this subject matter because this has always been a subject um, analogous to trekking through <laughs> a landmine actually on ice skates to be honest with you when you are attempting to examine the history of the Jewish community the lineage of Hebrew people tracing the history of uh, for example the Falasha Jews the Jewish involvement in the slave trade the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis and of course the relationship between blacks and Jews it is a terrain fraught with skewed polemic antagonism indignation and inevitably it fosters a hostility that usually leads to ruined careers so we certainly uh have to be careful with this nick cannon uh made a grave error uh in trying to articulate quote research uh that has always been shrouded in controversy and i want to be frank we have to and um he ought to have been extremely careful in this he was extremely, in my judgment, inartful and inarticulate uh, in his delivery. And he didn't have a good command of the information that he wanted to explain. And uh, he was unnecessarily offensive. That is his major crime, in my judgment, not being able to articulate these issues in a way that isn't offensive to people. And I remember 30 years ago uh, when I first read, uh, because he cited Francis Cress Welsing, so I'm going to cite that as well. I remember reading her book. Gosh, it had to be about 30 years ago. Um, uh, the ISIS Papers and author Kosler's uh, 13th Tribe. Um, and I, 13th Tribe, let me be clear about that. And I couldn't Wait to tell the world of white genetic annihilation uh, that's uh, reflective in uh, uh, Francis Cress Welsing's book or the history of the Khazars and the Sephardian and the Ashkenazim Jews. I couldn't wait to explain this. I felt as if I was the only person in the world that had this information and I had to share it with everybody. I felt it a sacred duty. I had to expound on this stuff. It was burning in my belly and in my heart. I needed to share this knowledge, to share this research. And by the way, you obviously can't see um, when I put up in air quotes research. Anyway, my enthusiasm on this issue was uncontainable. You've heard me. Uh, in previous podcasts, I mentioned often about my library of books. I sort of brag about it, 300 plus, uh, in fact. But 
the two that I just mentioned were a couple of, were just a few of what I used to carry around uh, in case the issue came up in my daily interactions. I had study notes and the margins of those particular books were filled with uh, quick references and I marked them and I highlighted and I circled entire paragraphs and swaths of the book to debate whomever was available for an exchange So I instinctively know how Nick Cannon felt in wanting to share all of this. But my question is why now? Why is he so late to the game? We were arguing these issues in the late 80s, all of the 90s, in fact. I addressed this issue uh, on my first radio show, Let's Talk News, which was on 88.1 FM WYGG in Asbury Park. We uh, you know, Remember when George Bush launched war with Iraq uh, and the turmoil between the Palestinians and Israelis was raging in the Middle East and the United States was leading efforts to bring peace in the Middle East as we were militarily engaged with Afghanistan and Iraq while trying to preserve relationships with the Kurds and Turkey and Pakistan and conversations of Jews' progenity were being had. 2001, 2000, I remember all of that. This is a discussion that has no real reward other than to garner anxiety and anger and generate suspicion and doubt and fray relationships. And the question again is why now? And let me be clear about something. I'm not saying that we should abandon uh, efforts to sift out fact and fiction as it relates to whether the Jewish community are the actual descendants of Abraham, because that's at the heart of all of this. What I will suggest is that rather than having someone, and I'm not casting aspersions or denigrating Nick Cannon, but rather than having someone like Nick Cannon or even uh, Professor Griff or others attempt this endeavor The professionals in this field of study should be engaging in an honest discourse and debate about this. And unfortunately, we have too many pseudo intellectuals that have a diminutive and fleeting grasp of this issue. And they can't they get lost in an inartful delivery, as we've seen and heard. They get lost in inarticulation and they have trouble recalling information. And as is usually the case, because they don't have a firm grasp or firm handle on this information that uh, they, quote, researched, they resort to offensive language rather than presenting a case that is both palatable and undeniable to the people that you're trying to convince. For example, if you call someone or a group of people real savages because of their uh, proximity or lack thereof to the equator, not the sun, as uh, Cannon was suggesting, then you have not only offended them, you have lost an ability to reach them with a cogent argument. It took many years for me to learn uh, that hard lesson. So rather than Nick explaining how uh, proximity to the equator, which actually was the term that he should have used rather than the sun. Rather than him explaining that that proximity 
has varying impacts and benefits and even detriments to other people, he devalued and devolved into an unnecessary uh, slew of name calling. You don't call people savages because of uh, their lack of proximity to the equator. And equally offensive and, in my judgment, quite uh, dishonest was to suggest that because folks were aggressive toward others because they were not close to the sun is silly and it's uninformed. And it's, it pains me to, to deal with this in this way, but that's the reality. The African continent was riddled with conflict unrelated to proximity to the sun or equator, usually relating to agricultural needs and cultural and tribal differences. It's just basic human behavior and interaction. That's the reality. It has nothing to do with the sun. That aggression is not exclusive to anyone because they are living in the Mediterranean or the Caucasus Mountains. Aggression is aggression. No one group has a monopoly on that. If you have just a cursory understanding of history, particularly on the African continent as it relates to empires and the conflicts that arose as a result of being in a situation where you have to feed your family, for instance, these conflicts arise because that's basic human tenets. As tempting as it is to use your platform and your megaphone to attempt to articulate your, quote, research, the danger is conflating and or muddying information that you don't have a firm handle on. So rather than calling folks savages, it would have been a better use of time explaining that, for instance, the uh, fourth Galatian uh, period lasted upward of 100,000 years, which actually contributed to the development of distinct races and that adaptation to these environments contributed to, for instance, and I never forget reading this from uh, Sheikh Antediop's book, The uh, African Origins of Civilization, how being in certain environments contributed to even narrowing of the nostrils and depigmentation of the skin and of the pupils and of the eyes. That's spelled out in his book. Hostility and aggression was not exclusive to these folks because of environment. And I'm not speaking specifically to Nick Cannon. I'm speaking to individuals who have adopted that thought process. Humanity is fraught with conflict and aggression and the human instinct to survive drought and famine, for instance, on the African continent. And is similarly fraught as trying to survive colder climates where agriculture and resources are scarce. So human aggression and conflict is not exclusive to those who Nick considered savages. That's unfortunate language that wasn't necessary in explaining all of this. Indeed, we are imbued family and we are blessed with melanin in our skin. It is a gift from God. It is a superpower that I believe that we have, and I believe it to my core. 
But the African landscape, again, is indeed riddled with conflict unrelated to Nordic excursions and hostilities. So to advance an argument, you must be willing to provide the full planopy of information. Now, before I move on, because I got a lot to cover here. Because this deficit in power has to be fully explored. I want you to be a bit more familiar with some of the research Nick failed miserably to articulate. And and again, I loathe pouncing on the brother, but uh, there are times when we have to be corrected. Part of it comes from author uh, Kosler's much disputed book, The 13th Tribe. I had that book in my library, as indicated, and I've read it a few times over the years. And it's easy to get caught up in the explosive premise of the book if you're looking to advance a position that is controversial. I want to attempt to summarize some of the main points, and that is that the Sephardian sects of the Jewish community uh, are descendants of the Jews who lived in Spain or Western Europe and the Mediterranean, and that the Ashkenazi of Scripture refers to the people that settled near or on Mount Ararat uh, and Armenia and not Eastern European Jews, as the book indicates. The book claims that the Jews of our time fall into two main categories or divisions, Sephardian and Ashkenazim. And the Sephardian are descendants of the Jews who since antiquity had lived in Spain or in Hebrews uh, Sephirot until they were expelled at the end of the 15th century and settled in the countries bordering on the Mediterranean, the Balkans, and to a lesser extent in Western Europe. And apparently, according to the book, uh, they spoke a Spanish-Hebrew dialect, Ladino, and preserved their own traditions and religious rites. And in the 1960s, the number of the Sephardian was estimated at about 500,000. Now, the book goes on to suggest that the Ashkenazim at that same period numbered about 11 million. Uh, thus, in, in common parlance, so says the book, Jew is practically synonymous with Ashkenazi Jew. But the term is misleading for the Hebrews word Ashkenaz was in medieval rabbinical literature applied to Germany, thus contributing to the legend that modern Jewry originated on the Rhine. There is, however, no other term, according to the book, to refer to the non-Sephardic majority of contemporary Jewry. In other words, the Semitic people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are not, as it is claimed in the book, of the lineage of the people we recognize as Jews today. That is, according to the book, and as I've said The complexity of this subject has many layers, a multitude of perspectives. Historic narratives are grounded in oral traditions and ethnic and racial identities. And then when you add to the mix genetics and chromosomal markers, it's complicated. It's a subject that is too complex for a lot of people, especially for persons devoid of a firm grasp of these issues. Genetic identity is personal and is 
precious and it involves tradition of all kinds, including religion and culture. So there is an obligation to be sensitive, not to address it in a haphazard way or with a motive that invariably robs people of their dignity and their identity. Because think of it this way. How do we feel? As African-Americans, knowing that our name has been robbed of us, our culture has been robbed from us, our self-respect and our dignity has been taken from us. So we ought not to, if we're going to engage in this kind of study, not to rob people of their identity in a way that is offensive. If we have information and truth that's available, let's bring it to the table and so that we can hash out that truth in a way that is respectful to a person's genetic identity and their personal and precious traditions. Let's be careful with that. I'm going to play two clips back to back because it's instructive for you to grasp just how complex these issues are. Uh, now, they're a little bit lengthy, uh, but you will walk away with a better appreciation for the error that our brother made in attempting to explain all of this. I want you to take a listen. The beginnings of the legend of the, of the Lost Tribe go back to the northern part of the Israelite kingdom. So initially the, the, the kingdom was, was a single kingdom um, under, under King David and King David's son Solomon. But shortly after that, the kingdom was split into a northern part and a, and a southern part. And the northern part was conquered by the Assyrians. And these guys were nasty, truly nasty. And when they conquered a place, they practiced what's probably the first recorded instance of ethnic cleansing. And so what they did to make sure that there wouldn't be subsequent rebellions, they took the leadership of any places that they conquered and distributed them elsewhere so they couldn't uh, reestablish themselves. And they did that uh, with the northern uh, part of, of the Israelite kingdom, which was called Israel. Um, they did that with the northern kingdom and all the uh, tribes that had been allotted that portion of, of, of the ancient Israelite territory disappeared. And, and that is what we now think of as the lost tribes, those individuals that then disappeared, because the story in the Bible is told from the perspective of the southern kingdom. From the perspective of the southern kingdom called Judah, these individuals were gone. Now, what happened to them, nobody knows. Some people actually think that Kurdish Jews and other Jews from that region may in fact trace back to, to that very early um, dispersal. But nobody really knows, but that's the origin of the idea of the lost tribes. And it had such an impact on people over time that you've got groups literally everywhere in the world at different points in time, um, from Japan to, to, uh, to Holland um, to Afghanistan, in fact, that have been identified with the, uh, with, with the lost tribes. And so as such, uh, we took the view that it wouldn't be sensible to just indiscriminately go out and start genotyping anybody that has some kind of a claim to a Jewish connection. But there was one group in particular that really was quite uh, uh, intriguing, and that's the, the Lemba from, from Southern Africa. And while they uh, 
did not consider themselves uh, a lost tribe uh, uh, in a narrow sense. They did consider themselves to have an origin in the ancient um, Israelite uh, kingdom. Uh, and they have a story of dispersal from, from that part of the world something like 3,000 years ago and other aspects to the story. And that part of it is not so distinctive by itself because there are other groups that have stories like that. But there had been a study done perhaps 10 or 15 years back now, a bit longer maybe, by a South African geneticist that showed that some of the Y chromosomes in this group, the Lemba, were Semitic as opposed to Bantu. And that distinction is quite easy to make with genetic markers on the Y chromosome. And that was surprising because the Lemba look like their Bantu neighbors, and yet they have a lot of Y chromosomes that are Semitic. So that's intriguing, but that doesn't make it a Jewish connection. So with that starting point, we thought, well, might there be some way to see whether the Semitic Y chromosomes that these Lemba carry, whether they might have, in fact, a specifically Jewish origin. So that's what got us started. When you think about Jewish chromosomes as opposed to Semitic chromosomes, that's a hard distinction to make because we know that that's where Jewish Y chromosomes come from, that part of the world. And so a lot of Y chromosomes, it'd be hard to tell whether they got into the Lemba from specifically a Jewish source or, for example, from you know, Arab traders or something like, like, like that. However, the studies that we had done with the priesthood had identified this one Y chromosomal type, which we called the Cohen modal haplotype, the most common type in the Cohenim. That type is not very common in non-Jewish populations. In fact, it's pretty rare. So if we happen to bump into that type in the Lemba, we could say, hey, it's pretty likely it's a Jewish origin because it's not too common elsewhere. So that's about all we had to go on, and off we went. And sure enough, uh, when we looked in the uh, Lemba, 10% of them, or a little bit more, had this type, which is primarily found in Jewish populations. And that was a stunner, I have to say. Every so often you do this work and you see something, you say, that's amazing. And, um, and that was a stunner. And not only did we see this particular Y chromosomal type uh, that seems characteristic of Jewish populations in the Lemba, but it was uh, clustered in a particular clan within the Lemba called the Buba. And that clan is accorded a leadership role uh, within, within the Lemba. So it really does sort of seem to fit together with the story that there is a, some kind of a ancient uh, Jewish origin here, and maybe the Buba who are accorded a leadership role trace more to, to, to that origin. And, and I think that finding that chromosome there doesn't prove that historical case. But if you looked at it and said, well, what do you think is really happening? Your guess is that's what's happening. You don't very often get to do work that results in something that makes you say, wow, that's, that's pretty neat. And, and when that does happen, you feel pretty lucky. And I, I do feel a lot of it is, in fact, luck. You start a study, and if it happens to, to have something in it that's striking, then you find it. And um, so I think science is maybe seven or eight parts luck. and one or two parts not making mistakes, because what you have to do is just not get things wrong. But otherwise, it has to be there. And in the case of the Lemba, we got very lucky. There is something really pretty amazing sitting there 
in the genetic makeup of the Lemba, and we got to see it, and that, and that was really, really exciting. And that was uh, Duke professor David Goldstein, author of the book Jacob's Legacy. And one of the things that is crystal clear to me uh, is that you can have a conversation about this issue without vitriol. An insult. You can explore this terrain of study in a thoughtful and careful way without resorting to uh, castigating people in an attempt to uplift our own people. And I want to be clear about this. I'm not required. We're not required to have white folks verify and affirm our history. But it's my position that when we attempt to decipher and unravel the past, when we're uh, adamant about discovery and the depths of antiquity, we can do so with an earnest effort for truth and not insult. Now, I want to take a listen uh, to Modric Mayor Raressa of the Limba Jewish community. And forgive me for mispronouncing the name, um, but he is of the Limba Jewish community, as was referenced uh, by David Goldstein. Take a listen to this. But now I'm going to tell you about my tribe, the Limba Jews of Zimbabwe, our culture, our history, our current status, the problems that we are facing, the solutions that we hope we are going to come with to those problems that we are facing. And so the Lemba are a tribe which is found in Southern Africa. Uh, if you look down uh, that map to the blue uh, on the map, that is Zimbabwe, that's where I come from. And the Lemba Jews are found mostly in Southern Africa, but uh, most of them are in Zimbabwe. Our oral tradition is transmitted to us by our forefathers, tell us that uh, our ancestors were Jews who migrated from Judea to Yemen. And this happened approximately 2,000 years ago soon after the destruction of the second temple. And they settled in Yemen for a while before moving on to settle in Africa. At first they settled in Mozambique, which is also in Southern Africa. And this migration was necessitated by the need to find new trade routes and new trading partners because Lemba uh, were traders and middlemen. Later on, they moved on from Mozambique and settled in Zimbabwe, first in central Zimbabwe, but later on they moved further south, still in Zimbabwe, to settle uh, at, uh, in Great Zimbabwe area. Uh, it's a province called Mashingo uh, today. Uh, it is said that our forefathers were skilled miners and metal workers. Uh, when we settled uh, at Great Zimbabwe, we became more and more involved in the mining of minerals like copper, gold, and precious stones like emeralds. And we also processed these minerals, making uh, jewelry like gold, golden bracelets, uh, necklaces, and so forth. We also believe that we built the Great Zimbabwe. The Great Zimbabwe is a stone world city 
uh, in the olden days, it served as a trading post. From there, trade between Africans and uh, at first Arabs, then later on the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the Swahili was coordinated from uh, Great Zimbabwe. Fascinating. Ethiopian juice, the falasha, the limba. These are worthwhile explorations of truth. But does it necessitate vitriol? And when we are engaged in this conversation, does it necessitate our Jewish friends to be offended to the point of calling for contracts to be torn and people to be fired and partnerships to be severed? Oral tradition, genetic history, genetic variations, genetic identity, chromosomal splits, in conjunction with environment and culture and geographic migrations are complicated stuff. And at the risk of uh, offending and minimizing and perhaps even devaluing what Professor Griff and others have to offer on this issue, for me, family, I'd rather have professional exponents of this information have the airtime to explain uh, the genomic and genetic variations and environmental impact than someone new to this or have a cursory understanding of this field of study. Now, I'm going to make this personal. As much as I've given time to this, there are people far more equipped to wade through the language and science and etymology of this stuff than I am. I'm freely capable of admitting that there are certain things that are way over my head. Not to suggest anything or besmirch anything with regard to Professor Griff, but I'd rather have individuals who can expound upon this issue in a way that is not offensive. Rather than Nick Cannon making inartful and inarticulate blanket statements about who the real Semitic people are. Because as we know, and as was articulated by someone whose Limba lineage actually traces back from Yemen to Judah 2,000 years ago, after the destruction of the temple, he had an obligation, family, if he was going to address this subject matter, to bring to his platform experts that can actually offer this information in a sober, yet forthright and responsible way. That's just my position. And this is a hard lesson for Nick and many of my fellow broadcasters. We all must learn when you bring people to the airwaves to tackle an issue that is broad and laborious and it involves exhaustive inquiry, we must adhere to objective standards. We owe our listeners and our audiences the opportunity to weigh the full range of the information we bring to them. Again, I'm not besmirching Professor Griff because this is a man whom I have much respect. But what I've learned over the years, family, is that folks ought to be vigorously challenged. Professor Griff, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, and a host of others have absolutely nothing to lose and is answerable to no one. 
And I royally admire them for being in the position of having not to answer to anyone. So they are free to express how they feel, whether they do it in a vitriolic way or a respectful way. But still, they ought to be challenged. And those of us who are broadcasters have an obligation to make sure that that happens. So to resolve the conundrum of addressing these particular areas of study, the best route to take is to have experts in this field probe the nuances and the dissensions and the disputes in the varying arguments that for years have caused fissures family. If I'm ever blessed, and yes, I said blessed to have the honorable minister Louis Farrakhan on my podcast or uh, my public affairs show. I know that he is equipped to first Handle the tough questions. And secondly, he will be able to go toe to toe with anyone that I invite to debate him. But what's important for broadcasters is that he and others are challenged not to be given uh, full range to present their argument. Folks ought to be challenged. Look, I don't have a problem being challenged on any of the perspectives that I have. I've debated Republicans, conservatives, whomever. It doesn't matter. I don't mind having challenge. And I know that the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, because I've watched his work over the years, he don't mind being challenged. Professor Griff don't mind being challenged. But someone like Nick Cannon, who just has a small grasp of this issue, is not equipped, or at least from what I've seen and heard, is not equipped to be challenged on this issue. So as I begin to close out, I do want to address this last point regarding Nick Cannon's tweet that seemed to suggest at least some fleeting thought of suicide. I don't know. I can't you know, read the brother's mind. But he, he tweeted this, and I found it interesting. I hurt an entire community, and it pained me to my core. I thought it couldn't get any worse. Then I watched my own community turn on me and called me a sellout for apologizing. Good night. Enjoy Earth. And then he goes on and he added, y'all can have this planet. I'm out. And then the message marked his location as heaven. Look, I don't know what's going on with our brother. And I understand that CBS has now uh, pulled his program. Our brother Nick has been essentially forced to apologize. Now, whether you agree with his apology or not is immaterial to me. Well, I shouldn't say that. It is material because calling him a sellout is, in my judgment, irresponsible. For a man to explore the depths of his heart to realize an error that he's made and he believes he made an error and he apologizes to call him a sellout for that, I find that amazing. I'm just going to be honest. But what is clear, which I think everybody uh, is having a problem with, is this power deficit that is really on full display, in my judgment. We have an imbecile in the Oval Office that can spout the most ridiculous conspiracy theories, insult our community, castigate our black elected officials, and express the most vitriolic and divisive rhetoric that put at risk Mexicans and Muslims and public figures that dare demand respect 
and integrity. A man, by the way, that bragged about grabbing women by their vaginas and still got elected. A man, by the way, that insulted the disabled community and champions the symbols and monuments of people that wanted to keep our people in bondage. And yet millions of mindless people, heartless bigots, followers uh, of this man are enthusiastic about casting another vote for that cretin and the repercussions of his despicable behavior have no real consequence. Yes, in November, we can vote that Cretan out. But to this point, there has not been any consequence for what spills from that bigot's mouth. And yet, Nick Cannon is losing everything that he worked so hard for, everything that he's built over the years because part of his era was not being objective in his presentation of a complex issue and being a champion of black people and uplifting our place on the world stage and celebrating the African diaspora. Yes, he was offensive, but at the end of the day, he apologized for his offense. When was the last time that Cretan in the Oval Office offer anything remotely close to an apology for offending our community, the Hispanic and Latino community, the disabled community, the Muslim or Islamic community. That, in essence, is the power deficit that Nick Cannon and our community has to contend with in this country. And that, my friends, is exhibit A and why we must be in charge. We must be in ownership, have our own stuff. We need to own our own music. We need to own our entertainment and our entertainment venues. We need to own our distribution networks, own our broadcast media outlets, our award shows, our television programs and networks, our intellectual property, our patents. I know we uh, can point to Oprah and Diddy and Jay-Z and uh, Magic Johnson and Tyler Perry and others, but we need to champion our independence from other folks. We need to limit our partnerships, possibly even sever ties with certain partnerships and limit uh, partnerships with uh, major conglomerates. Take back majority stake in investment properties and stock uh, portfolios. It continues to both amaze and befuddle me how white folks control the distribution, the dissemination, the programming, and the management of our music and our entertainment and our sporting ventures. Everything. And perhaps Nick Cannon's situation serves as an example for all of us to see the necessity of owning your own stuff. Excuse me. 
Let me be a little bit more blunt. Owning your own shit. But what's causing Nick Cannon more anxiety, if you read his tweet, is to be rebuffed by some in our community for issuing an apology for his statements. Let me make this abundantly clear. What stirs my ire about black folk, my community, our community, is our inconsistency, our rigid adherence to efforts to bring each other down and cast aspersions on people that muscle through roadblocks and obstacles to achieve success. We like to bring each other down. What frustrates me about my people is that we spend a great deal of time hurling cynical critiques of people that are putting in the work to change things in this world. This apology that he offered was an attempt to change things in this world. These are the armchair revolutionaries and pretend woke folk that criticize marches and protesters that rail against the work and efforts of civil rights leaders and organizations and groups that are on the front lines doing the work. These are the folks that sit behind the keyboard firing off insults and memes and phony pseudo intellectual arguments that substantiate the fact that they've never picked up a book or engaged our struggle in a meaningful way. They don't sacrifice their personal livelihood or put in jeopardy their jobs or career for this thing called struggle. These are the folks that can come out of their mouths and criticize our heroes in the civil rights movement who, by the way, put their lives and bodies on the line so that we can enjoy and take advantage of some of the freedoms that we are enjoying at this very moment. Now, sure, it's a long way to go, but it's up to us to carry the torch rather than offering silly critiques about what they would have done differently when in reality suggests that they are doing next to nothing meaningful themselves today. And at the end of this exceedingly uh, disappointing spectrum are folks that claim to stand with you. But at the end of the day, abandon you when you are at the most vulnerable state in your life. They are with you until it gets too hot. They are down until the moment arrives. When you turn around. They can actually see in the horizon you running away with your tail between your legs. And at that moment, when you are ready to sacrifice it all, they found that exit ramp while you are left holding the bag. For Nick and others, black folk will disappoint you all the time. I want to close with two quick stories. I... Remember years ago, I was working at Jersey Shore Medical Center, and I'm the one that started their Black History Month pro program back in '88, '89, and so for several years, I was the one that uh, spearheaded the uh, recognition of our uh, ancestry and our history and heritage. 
And I remember how folks were fighting me on this, folks who were white. Yeah, I faced headwinds and some racial taunts had one individual suggest as we were preparing one year for uh, Black History Month, she said, I didn't think that Africans ate real food. I thought they ate tree bark and drunk tiger's milk. That's what she said. I'll never forget that. Those are the kinds of headwinds that I had to uh, contend with at Jersey Shore Medical Center. While others were successful at celebrating their heritage, I had to face headwinds to celebrate us. And to this day, this we're in 2020, they still, because of Ron Holland, celebrate Black History Month. But there was a moment that I will never forget. This is a lesson for Nick Cannon and others when you are engaged in this kind of stuff. I was working in patient transportation and I was a medical attendant and I had photographs of Reverend Sharpton, Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Minister Louis Farrakhan, and it was one other individual. Anyway, I walked into the office because those photographs and cutouts, newspaper cutouts were on the, on my locker outside the locker, not inside, outside the locker. And I walked into the office and scribbled on those photographs that I treasured were six, 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 a satanic star and emblem and KKK. Remember the KKK being written across. uh, I think it was, yeah, it was on Dr. Leonard Jeffries' chest. And the satanic emblem was uh, defacing Minister Farrakhan's face. And I was outraged by this. So I called my supervisor. And then, of course, his supervisor was alerted. Now, mind you, my supervisor, you mean, I'm not, it's not even important to say his name. But if he's hearing this, he knows who he is. And those who remember know who this individual is. And I remember them calling me into the office, suggesting that I defaced hospital property. Now, mind you, I already knew instinctively that because of what I was reporting, because I'm, a, I'm here's the deal. I had threatened to bring in the NAACP to investigate whomever put this racist stuff on uh, my property. I already knew that the S was going to hit the fan. So what I did was I bought a camera with me the next day because the meeting was set for the next day about what had happened to my property. So I bought a camera in and I went before my shift started to all of the floors and I went into the nurses lounges and I went into where the physicians were, where they kept their lockers. And I took photographs of lockers of individuals, doctors and nurses and administrators, all these folks who had lockers. Many of these folks had photographs and stuff on the outside of their lockers. So I remember being called into 
This is one of the reasons why I hate the word behoove. I, and I used it earlier, but I hate that word behoove. Because one, the, my supervisor, supervisor actually used that language as we were trying to sort out what happened with me. They actually said that I was defacing hospital property because I had photographs posted, taped to the outside of my locker. So instead of resolving the issue of someone coming into that office and defacing and scribbling these racist and satanic uh, marks on my stuff, I'm the one being called to the carpet. So I pulled out my camera to my black supervisor and his white supervisor. And I said, well, if I am going to be written up because that's what they threatened, then you are going to have to take the photographs that's in this camera and you're going to have to hunt down every person who has photographs and pictures and newspaper cutouts on their lockers. Yeah. Because I threatened to bring in the NAACP and I had an individual with my hue of skin sell me out. I know what that feels like. So I was a medical trans. I was patient transport and, and gosh, so many years ago. And I was a medical attendant. And I remember a couple of days later, I had hurt my back. Lifting a nearly 500 pound person out of the bed, literally by myself, using this apparatus that we had. And I remember documenting that my back was killing me as a result and that I couldn't go on for the rest of the day. I remember that instinctively. And I remember them using that as an excuse to write me up. And inevitably, one of the other individuals that made a complaint was someone that shared my hue of skin, not just my supervisor, but someone else. So I understand what it's like. When black folk turn their back on you, when you are trying to stand up and bring value to who you are as an individual and as a people. Because even as I put together that program, I was facing headwinds, not just from white folk, but from our people. People who called on Jesus. I will never forget that. Because I said that the dignity that I love and enjoy about our people should be reflected in everything that we do. And the people that sold me down the river, that ushered me out of a job, were people who share our hue of skin. And that's the God's honest truth. I tell that story because I want people to understand that just because people share your hue of skin... And just because they articulate and express things that you think might think they support you, they don't. Because at that time, I was a great I was a huge supporter of Reverend Sharpton. And I expressed my love for that man. But folks who didn't like that had trouble with that. So I remember when Bill Clinton and Al Gore were running for president and everybody, every nurse, every doctor in that hospital were they were actually wearing buttons, Bill Clinton and Al Gore buttons. But when Ron Holland decided that he wanted to wear a Black Panther button, suddenly I'm defacing 
hospital uniform policy. So I'm called to the carpet because I have a button that they didn't like and that I was defacing hospital uniform policy while white folks were running around wearing election uh, buttons. That's the disparity that I had to deal with. That's minuscule. But this is an example. Years ago, I was marching with Reverend Sharpton, me and my karate teacher. We, gosh, I think this was 2002, 2003. I can't remember. Reverend Sharpton, there was an issue of police brutality in New York, and I can't remember the exact cause, but we, there was a decision to march down Fifth Avenue. This was a, a few days before Christmas, and me and my karate teacher, we'd, we drove up to New York. We first went to Harlem to attend the rally. Then, of course, we had to drive where the uh, march was going to take place, up Fifth Avenue. And there was already a decision that Reverend Sharpton and his leadership were going to be arrested. So we already knew what was going to happen. What was the, we knew it. So we get now, and we're marching down Fifth Avenue, and... The police, New York Police Department had paddy wagons in front of us, paddy wagons in the back of us. They had police along the side of the, on, on sidewalk, the whole nine yards. And here we are being, so I, we're not trapped, but in other words, we had folks in front and back of us, and we were in this particular march. And I remember Reverend Sharpton being arrested, and I think Alton Maddox and some others were already arrested. And I remember the police getting on the bullhorn saying, if you're going to be arrested, stay in the street. If you're going to go home and not be arrested, get on the sidewalk. So as the crowd was thinning out and I'm looking at my sensei, he looking at me and all of these people who have to live with this police brutality and everything that was happening at that time, 98% of those folks were trickling off to the sidewalk so that they wouldn't be arrested. And I remember saying to my karate teacher, I said, you know what? Wait a minute. Here we are. We drove all the way from New Jersey. My car is parked about an hour away from where we are. I want to spend time with my children and my family for Christmas. And I know people make certain sacrifices. I get that. But the people that are actually living with this stuff, I said, I said, I said, OB, I said, if they are leaving and they're going home, why must I sacrifice my time with my family and my wife, my children? I said, you know what? And my car is going to be told and nobody's going to, I'm going to have to call my wife to bail me out. Who's going to spend the money getting me out of jail in New York? I'm from Asbury Park, New Jersey. <laughs> I remember that instinctively and that told me a lot about our people. Who's willing to sacrifice and give up and who's who's not. And I often think about that moment. Should I have gotten arrested, carted off to jail? And then I wrestle with this. Do I put my family, my wife and my children in a financial bond where at the end of the day, the people that are wrestling with all of this are not willing to do the same? You see, I was willing to do that initially until the moment where I saw that hundreds of people 
were trickling off. I could have been the martyr. My my karate teacher could have been the martyr. But those folks were going home to their families to spend time with their children, to open up gifts and celebrate Christmas with their children and family. And I had to think about it at that moment, almost like a split-second decision. Ron Holland, your children and your wife want you home for the holidays. I think it's time for you and your karate teacher to make your way back to New Jersey if 98% of the folks who are here, hundreds of people, are trickling off and going home Why shouldn't you? And I often wrestle with that moment. I don't have regrets, but I think about the sacrifices that many of us make. And you have to choose your battles, especially when you consider the fact that others are not willing to do the same. I remember this last story and I'm closing. My karate teacher and I came from one march uh, in Harlem with Reverend Sharpton. And we had just got back and just arrived in Asbury Park. And I was actually, we were going down Main Street in Asbury. And we turned past the Orchid Lounge. And the conversation that we were having at the time was, my, my sensei asked me, said, are you willing to die for your people? And we just kept going, you willing to die for your people? I'll never forget that. And then I said instinctively, you know what? I am willing to die, but I'm not sure at this point. Because why must I sacrifice my life? Why must my wife live without her husband and my children without father when we are passing this orchid lounge and you got knuckleheads out here right now drinking 40 ounces, going about their business, not involved or engaged at all. I had to wrestle with that. Dying for people that at the end of the day, you can be a martyr People can celebrate you. People will also forget you and abandon you. I had to learn that hard lesson. And it was a hard lesson indeed. So I would say to Nick Cannon and fellow broadcasters and others engaged in this work, social media is replete with naysayers and armchair revolutionaries and folks whose support is as fleeting as ratings that will determine if a television show will get green lighted for another season i would say to nick cannon do your thing let objectivity and an honest pursuit of truth be your truth. Let the experts hash out the arguments. If you're not grounded enough to articulate these issues and abandon the vitriol and insults, they aren't necessary. Your brilliance and love of community shines bright and we are all proud of your accomplishments. You were right to apologize for calling people savages. But you were also right in addressing an issue that involves our history and our place in the world. I understand how pained you are by feeling that you have been abandoned by our community. It is both indicative and instructive as you move forward. 
This is Ron Holland, host of the Fire In My Words podcast. We'll talk with you soon. God bless.